0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Released from... Kap- ...to Ayel Nouri, nephew of freed hostage Adina Moshe. And to Israeli psychologist Ayelet Gunder Goshen on how Israelis are grappling with the trauma. Then, the lived reality of Palestinians. Journalist Nathan Thrall brings us the ever-relevant story of a 2012 tragedy from his new book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama. Plus, Roxanne Gay talks to Michelle Martin about the evolution of internet discourse and her life as a famous opinion writer. And finally, the Booker Prize goes to Paul Lynch. The Irish author joins me to talk about his winning novel, Pocket Song. Welcome to the program everyone, I'm Bianna Golodryga in New York sitting in for Christiane Amanpour. A truce between Israel and Hamas in Gaza is extended by two days, Qatar announced today. The pause is, in fighting gives some relief to a besieged Gaza and more time to work out deals to swamp Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners. Over the weekend, four-year-old American Israeli Abigail Ed- Edan was released, but not into the arms of her parents. They were killed in front of her on October 7th when Hamas stormed their kibbutz. Abigail's aunt, uncle, and grandparents are now taking care of her and her siblings. Also released was nine-year-old Emily Hand, an extremely emotional moment for her sister and father who initially believed that she was dead. Emily's mother died of cancer when she was two years old. Here's Emily's father, Thomas, before she was discharged from the hospital.
1: Yeah, Yesterday we finally got Emily back from the hands
2: of the Gaza and terrorists. Uh,
1: she's lost a lot of weight um, from her face and body, uh, but generally doing better than we expected. So we're in the hospital, Safra, tell Safra tell her shea- her. taking care of Emily. Um, We'd like to thank everyone that has helped and supported us throughout this whole 50 days. You've been great. We, we can't do it without you.
0: The image of Thomas hugging his daughter is just so heartwarming after everything they've been through. Well, Ayal Nouri's aunt, Adina Moshe, as you see here in this video, was released on Friday. You may recall this horrifying picture of Adina being captured on October 7th. Adina's husband was murdered, along with most others, on her kibbutz. Uh, Eyal, uh, welcome to the program. Um, some much-needed relief, I would imagine, for your family, the release of your aunt. Uh, tell us how she is doing at this moment.
3: She's uh, getting her strength back. She's a bit uh, weak after uh, spending... More than uh, seven weeks in the tunnels of the Hamas, uh, being under fifth, uh, five floor under, with seeing uh, light only for two hours a day, so it's really uh, emotional for her to be back home among the people that loves her.
0: Her strength is just remarkable. A woman over 70 years old, to uh, according to reports uh, and what your aunt said when she found out that she was being released and others who were in worse condition than she was and older, she said, there's been a mistake. You should release them first before me. What was your reaction when you heard th- those really remarkable selfless words coming from her?
3: Yes, she told this to the Minister of Health of Israel. And when I heard that, uh, I thought to myself, this is exactly my aunt. This is the (laughs) same spirit she showed also when she went down from the Hamas vehicle and the terrorists gave her a hand for supporting her. She slapped his hand, "Uh, I don't need your help, I can walk by myself. And this is the power that she showed uh, where even though she was so weak, uh, still she didn't need their help.
0: Yeah, tell us about that. We saw that video. We don't really like replaying it because it falls into Hamas propaganda. They all of a sudden wanna be seen as um, humanitarians being kind to the hostages who they themselves took from their homes. But what does that say about your aunt, that, that she would slap a hand away and would rather walk as weak as she was than have the help of somebody from Hamas?
3: I think uh, it mostly shows that she wants to take her own destiny in her own hands. She's uh, been in captivity when someone tells you what to do all the time and humiliate you and do things you don't want to do and avoid you for taking shower and all kinds of stuff. Uh, this is not the way she wants to live her life. So she wanted to start doing whatever she wants. And one of the things that is amazing about my aunt She decided that she wants to be anonymous again. She she was anonymous before, and she wants to return to be anonymous. This is why she's she's forbidding us to show any pictures after her release. She wants to go back to the same woman she was before, even though the world has changed for her, completely upside down. She has no husband to hug her. And by the way, this is something that gave her strength in captivity because she said, I don't care anymore. You killed my husband, I don't care what you do to me. And from that, she took courage to support all the others that were with her in the same room, five floor under in the tunnel. So she was the one supporting the children there and the others, this is my aunt.
0: You mentioned your uncle, um, Said Moshe, um, who sadly was killed on October 7th. Theirs was a true love story I read that began at the kibbutz at Near Oz. They met at a swimming pool there and were married and inseparable best friends for decades. Tell us a little bit about your uncle.
3: My uncle, Said Moshe, uh, he's the brother of my, my mother. He met her when they were young, at the age of 20-something, 22. And they actually went to the desert when there was nothing there. And they uh, were farmers, and she worked in, uh, in the kibbutz and there as a teacher in kindergarten, and teach a lot of generation of children. And he raised potatoes and carrots and peanuts. He was called. Mr. Potato, Professor for Potatoes, and the brand name, Uncle Moshe, that everyone knows in Israel and in Europe, actually, uh, it was his brand, and he was known for that. Uh, Just before the massacre of October 7th, he was in Madrid in exhibition for fruit and vegetable, where he showed his uh, Uncle Moshe brand, and he rushed back home, to be with his family uh, on uh, October 6th. And one of the miracles we had that his granddaughter asked to stay with him. And I don't know why, and also her mother doesn't know why. She told her, you're not staying with grandpa today, just return, he's tired. And luckily she and my cousin Amos, her son, and five children survived. And wow. she, if she was staying with them, she probably get killed. So we see a lot of miracles, even though it was very dark Saturday, that stopped their wonderful relationship.
0: Well, our condolences for the loss of your of your uncle. Um, he sounded like a wonderful man who had really given so much to the the meaning and the beauty of what goes into a kibbutz and the collectiveness involved in maintaining. Those communities. Um, if you could tell me a little bit about what you've heard, and either from your aunt or from other reports, about h- how these hostages were treated, because I, I have read that um, while some may not have been physically a- a- abused, at least the reports that we've read, there was a little food. Little access to medicine, no news uh, of loved ones. Um, just sounds like complete hell in, in darkness underneath tunnels for, for so week, for so many weeks. Situation may be different for some of the other hostages, but what can you tell us about what your aunt endured?
3: Uh, there, there was different condition for different hostages because they were in different places. My aunt was taken from the window of her safe room, after uh, she tried to stop the bleeding of uh, my uncle, she was pulled out bare feet on a motorcycle to Gaza. And then they took her inside the tunnels, long, very long walk, not a walk that is uh, supposed to be for people uh, at their age, she walked bare feet, in the mud of the tunnels without air to breathe and there were people even over there that was very hard to breathe mm-hmm. and they marched hours in the tunnels until they reached a room where they stayed together many people and they got light only for two hours a day they were fed only by rice and some beans from can, which they tried to avoid eat in order not to have stomach ache. And, uh, you know, they not mentioned they didn't have any uh, decent facilities like shower. They didn't shower for seven weeks. So it's horrible condition. And I think the worst thing is that they are not only in darkness, literally, but also in darkness in terms of knowledge. They didn't, do any, didn't know anything what happened above in Israel and all the other events. They just heard the bombing, nonstop bombing until the day before they released suddenly there was an amazing silence and they knew something is going to happen but they didn't know what
0: well iyal nuri we are so glad and, and happy for you that that your aunt is home with you and i keep thinking about um 84 year old alma Abraham, who your aunt said should go in her place that tells us a lot uh, about the, the woman your aunt is um, give us all a big hug uh from us uh, to her thank you so much for your time. Thank you
3: so much. Thank you. Bye bye.
0: Well, the release of hostages is a small healing step for a nation in trauma, says my next guest. Israeli psychologist Ayelet Gunder Goshen says mental health support centers in Israel are struggling to cope after the horrors of October 7th and that survivors are grappling with intense feelings of guilt. Ayelet, uh, welcome back to the program from Tel Aviv. Uh, Thank you so much. So many questions to ask you because this really is uncharted territory that, that Israel, and I would imagine most countries, are in right now. Never at such a scale have you had so many traumatized people returning um, from being held captive in a country that is still shell-shocked by, by what has transpired uh, over the past seven weeks. Um, can you just, I don't know if you were able to listen to my previous interview with Ayal about his aunt Adina, uh, but he said that, that she is determined to come back better than ever just as she was. Obviously things are so different before, but uh, that, that is her strength and that is her determination despite the fact that so many lost their lives, including her husband, her, her her vindication here is coming back. Um, but we know, as encouraging as that may sound, that that's really not
1: the case for anyone. I think you're very much right. I think we can't look at this as the happy ending of the hostages coming back home because this is not a happy ending. It's not like a classical case when you have somebody being abducted and then coming back to their lives. They can't go back to their lives. When we think about the Vigaili Dan, she's a four-year-old girl. She was taken to Gaza. She returns home now, but there is no home. Her mother was murdered. Her father was murdered in front of her face. Her home was burned down. She comes back after 50 days in prison. So, of course, we are happy that she came back. But as a therapist, we all know that her journey is just beginning. This is just the beginning. This is not the happy ending that people are striving for. Every person is different, everybody's experience
0: is different, and how everyone copes with tragedy is different in shock like this. But if you can give us a broader picture of how the healing and the process of treating these people from children
1: to 72-year-olds begins. I think the thing is that you cannot take away the suffering. You cannot take away the pain. We can't change reality. We can't change the the massacre. We can't change what happened to them. We can try and help the way people deal with reality. If a mother comes back home uh, after being held prison and her daughter didn't survive and her daughter was killed, we cannot help her in her pain over her daughter. What we can try and do is see if she blames herself for her daughter uh, not surviving the attack while she survived it. Because self-blame and survivor's guilt are phenomena that we know that make people prone to having uh, PTSD that can stop them from being able to, to recover or even to heal a little bit. So even though we can't take away the suffering, we can try and help mothers, victims, fathers, kids who survived, to realize that this is not their fault, that this is not their fault for surviving, that they shouldn't be ashamed for coming back home when so many people will never come back home. And I think this is something that we as therapists have to deal with right now. The collective guilt, the survival guilt, which is something that we see among many patients. People blame themselves for staying alive while their children were slaughtered. Father blame themselves for not being able to help the mothers or help their kids so that even people who survived the massacre without being directly affected are poisoned. It's like the entire nation is going with this arrow of guilt stuck in the heart, and we're trying to, to take it out so that at least this pain can be relieved. Does Israel and those in your
0: profession that are supported by, by the government, financially at least, does Israel have the resources? necessary now to take on such a a challenge um, that, again, as we noted, no other country I can think of had to experience something at this scale, especially given Israel's size. And we know that, uh, that the health centers, specifically when it comes to mental health, were already strained
1: following COVID. Um, I'm working at Chelvata Mental Health Hospital and I must say we have right now more volunteers, more psychologists who are wanting to come and even to volunteer and to give uh, aid to the people who survived the massacre. Uh, We see the entire civic society, civil society standing up to support the survivors. It is a bit tricky though because you know one of the things you do when you see someone who survived the massacre is you want to, to help them with everything. You want to bring them food. You want to do their laundry. You want to let them just stay in the house, stay in bed so that they can heal. And this is quite a, often a, a mistake that the community does because sometimes when you want to support someone, it's not about making him stay at home and you do everything for him. Sometimes the support is helping someone reclaim his, his, the way he was before, reclaim his life skills or her life skills. So that instead of bringing them food or doing their laundry, you would try to, to delicately encourage the person to go back to, to activity. And it's very, very hard because once again, we're not dealing with normal grief. We're dealing with a huge trauma in huge scales. So obviously many people are still, I know people who haven't left their room since October 7th. And we're trying to to help those people get back to life. But many people feel that if they do get back to life, it's like abandoning the hostages. Mm -hmm. That if we have a spark of life in us, it means like maybe we don't care enough about the kids and the mothers who are still in Gaza. And this is a beautiful solidarity on one hand, but on the other hand, this is exactly what preserves the collective trauma. This is why the entire country is in trauma right now. The hostages will hopefully be released today, a few of them. If you go out now to Tel Aviv, nobody's in the streets, nobody's in the restaurant because everyone just wants to make sure that the kids are back and that the kids are safe. And it's a beautiful solidarity, but it has a huge impact over our economy, over other people who start suffering from nightmares and start suffering from syndromes of trauma.
0: Listen, I know you're professional, but I can see how, how this has impacted you as well. How could it not? You're, you're a human being, um, and, and this is your country that has been attacked. Uh, you know, the media, understandably, you know, myself being part of it and in us conducting this interview, we want to get as much information as we can. And it's sort of a, a healing process, I would say, for the world, having seen what happened on October 7th, to, to see these these families reunited. I'm just curious, from your professional perspective, what is your reaction when you see these first videos and
1: the images of the families reuniting with their loved ones? In these moments, I'm not a professional, I'm a mother. And when I saw Vigal coming back, I have kids her age. And I'm thinking how happy I am that she's out. And I'm thinking how much it is that she doesn't know yet about the world that awaits for her when she's coming out right now. So these are very emotional moments. And I think as a professional, the main thing I'm thinking about is What's next? How are we going to help the, those people? It's not just the hostages released. You have to remember that behind every hostage, there is a family. There is a community. The, the beautiful community of Nir Oz, Kibbutz Nir Oz, lost one of every four members in the community. One of every four members was either murdered, kidnapped or missing. So even people who aren't directly affected can't breathe right now. And. The only good thing I can think about is that we are standing strong as a community trying to support each other. And I hope that this gives the the families a little bit of comfort, that at least they know that they're not alone now. They were alone on the day of the massacre, but they're not alone now. I hope they know that. Ayelet Gunder Goshen, um, thank you for the time.
0: And, and it is reassuring to hear that not only professionals like you, but, but as you mentioned, so many others are, are just offering to help in any way possible um, as these, these really traumatized and wounded um, hostages return home to their families. And for now, they, they are the lucky ones, because clearly there are so many more that we're waiting to hear make a safe return as well. Um, thank you for your time. We hope to have you back soon. Well, we turn now to jubilant scenes in the occupied West Bank as crowds celebrate the release of dozens of Palestinian detainees Sunday as part of the deal between Israel and Hamas. People in Ramallah can be seen waving Palestinian and Hamas flags. Here is the moment Isra Jabis was reunited with her son in East Jerusalem after nearly a decade in prison. She was sentenced to 13 years back in 2015 after Israel accused her of attempted murder when her car blew up at a checkpoint a charge she has continuously denied. It comes as Palestinians living in the West Bank are subject to ongoing restrictions, particularly freedom of movement. A Day in the Life of Abed Salama is a new book that tells the story of a 2012 bus accident and a family caught up in the tragic bureaucratic reality of being Palestinian living in the West Bank. Journalist and author Nathan Thrall found himself promoting his book when the devastating events of October 7th unfolded. And he joins me now from New York to discuss. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, If I can just pick up uh, on a point Ayelet uh, made in our previous conversation now uh, where the suffering, she noted, is is on both sides, obviously in Gaza as well. She had written an op-ed last month where she noted that the trauma is profound on both sides of the border. We know that Palestinian uh, children and uh, innocent civilians have witnessed horrors as well if you could just put into context how you've been dealing with a book which you you wrote prior to october 7th but now the scenes that we're seeing can really argue one could argue uh, apply to the message you are sending in this book as well
4: yes that's right you know there's um, tremendous uh, trauma right now for uh, millions of people millions of israeli jews millions of palestinians and um, the subject of my book is um, that theme, is, is the deep, deep uh, trauma that millions of Palestinians uh, face living in a system of uh, gross inequality. And through the story of this uh, tragic bus accident and a father who can't pass through uh, checkpoints to find uh, his own son, his kindergarten son, Um, who was uh, uh, killed in that accident. He didn't know it at the time. I try to tell the whole story of Israel-Palestine and the deep uh, scars that both of these people are living with. Um, Your previous guest had mentioned the survivor's guilt and the blame uh, that many of these uh, parents uh, are inflicting on themselves and that's, you know, a, a theme that exists in my book as well. These parents had uh, absolutely no way to prevent this accident, had no way to uh, get to their children uh, faster despite all of the obstacles, had no way to ensure that Israeli fire trucks would get there sooner than a half hour uh, after the bus crash, Um, and yet they blamed themselves. And one of the most difficult things in my conversations with these families and with these parents was the tremendous uh, guilt that they felt their inability to forgive themselves uh, for the death of their children. And when we're looking now at the um, tremendous suffering of more than 14,000 dead in Gaza and uh, hundreds of hostages and um, more than 1200 dead in in Israel, um, it's easy for us to focus uh, narrowly on this immediate uh, suffering, and, and, and it's right that we focus on it. But we should also look at the decades-long system that keeps producing these traumas, that keeps producing this bloodshed. And that's really what my uh, book aims to highlight, is the uh, structural forces that are in place that are uh, producing daily violence uh, in order to keep the system in place, because no people will willingly accept Uh, oppression and the violence that it produces in return.
0: Can you tell us about how you came to know Abed and uh, at the time his son who died in 2012 was Milad and he was just five years old. I know you lived just what two and a half miles or so away from each other but one could describe it as two very different worlds.
4: That's right. I I live uh, in Jerusalem and I'm just Uh, two miles away from Abid Salama, whose son Milad died in this uh, uh, tragic accident. But uh, Abid lives um, on the other side of a 26-foot tall concrete wall in a community that is enclosed on four sides by walls. And uh, in that community, there are virtually no municipal services provided by the Jerusalem municipality. Um, There is trash burned in the middle of the street, there are no sidewalks, there are no playgrounds, there are no lanes in the road. And when I would travel uh, to visit Abed uh, in this community that's just two miles away from me, something that I would pass by almost every day and not uh, pay a, a moment's thought, when I would go and visit him, I would have to, you know, roll down my car window and pull in my side mirror just to pass by a bus on the main thoroughfare for about 130,000 people. And you could imagine uh, what the traffic jams are like day in and day out for all of these people living in this walled enclave. It couldn't be a more different existence uh, than the one I have in uh, Jerusalem just two miles away. and. My, you know, motive in in writing this book was to tell the story of these people who share the city with me and uh, live a separate and unequal uh, existence. So I found Abed through actually a mutual friend who was distantly related to him, knew that I was investigating this uh, tragic car accident, and uh, put me in touch with another relative who put me in touch with Abed.
0: Story centers around a bus accident, which anyone can relate to in whichever country they live in. Uh, You think of young children who don't necessarily have access to a green, thriving park close to them, and they are excited about spending a day on an adventure going to a park a bit further and uh, tragically die in a car accident. But you really lay out the complexities and what happens after that car accident um, that that really could, could lead to whether or not some of these survivors end up living or or in the case of Milad dying. I mean talk about even the the different color identity cards that one family may even have among themselves.
4: Yes, that's right. Um, you know in this walled enclave um, there are uh, it, inside a single family there are people who have uh, green West Bank IDs that forbid them from using one of the exits uh, from the enclave into the rest of Jerusalem. And there are people in the same family, in the same enclave, who have blue Jerusalem IDs that let them enter the rest of Jerusalem. And this had enormous consequences for the parents and children and teachers on the day of this accident. In fact, the existence of this system with separate green and blue colored IDs for different people living in the same community uh, was why this bus actually traveled a great distance to go to a play area close to Ramallah rather than a play area just on the other side of the wall in the Jewish settlement of Pisgatzeev. And on the day of the crash when this bus was struck by a giant semi-trailer and flipped over and caught fire The people who were on the road that day, Palestinian bystanders, themselves had green or blue IDs. And when they took these children off the bus, because the emergency services took so very long to reach this neglected area, they would take the kids based on the color of their ID to a specific location. So if you had a blue Jerusalem ID, you would take a soot-covered kindergartner in the backseat of your car to a nearby Jerusalem hospital which is far superior than the hospitals for Palestinians in the West Bank and if you had a green West Bank ID you couldn't go to Jerusalem hospitals so you went in the opposite direction to the hospital in Ramallah and similarly when the parents themselves rushed to the scene of the crash They got there and all of the the children had been evacuated by these bystanders who had green or blue IDs. Abed himself arrived at the scene and found a crowd and asked where are the children and he received so many different answers to that question. They're at this Jerusalem Hospital, they're at this West Jerusalem Hospital, they're at the Israeli military base a minute up the road, they're at the hospital in Ramallah. And Abed himself has a green West Bank ID. So he is unable to go and search in many of these places. He can't go to East Jerusalem. He can't go to West Jerusalem. uh, He cannot go to the Israeli military base. And so he goes to the hospital in Ramallah and calls on relatives who have blue IDs to go search for his son in the hospitals there.
0: It was ultimately a blood test uh, with his his older, one of his other children um, that, that confirmed uh, the, the death uh, of Milad. I was really touched um, just by the relationship that, that you built with Abed. Um, you described this as a therapy session, I would imagine, not only uh, for Abed, but, but for yourself as well and everyone that you spent so many thousands of hours and, and years um, interviewing and spending time with, putting this book together. And Nathan Thrall, thank you so much for sharing it with us today. We appreciate it.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: The Assignment with me,
5: Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
0: Well, now, language can bear incredible weight, especially in times of conflict. Our next guest understands this better than most. Roxane Gay is a best selling author and contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and has been sharing her thoughts on a wide range of topics since 2014. She recently published a compilation of her works in a new book, Opinions, a Decade of Arguments, Criticism, and Minding Other People's Business. And she joins Michelle Martin to discuss the power of speech. Thanks, Biana.
5: Roxane Gay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. When well, you started your public opinion journey, online. And I was just wondering, do you remember why you first started sharing your your opinions publicly and online? Do you remember what motivated you? Yeah, it started a long time ago. Even before social media,
6: I would go on bulletin boards in the old days of the internet. And it was great to be able to connect with people. You know, for people of my generation, the internet was truly a marvel. You could be sitting in a dorm room in Connecticut and you could talk to someone who was like a ham radio enthusiast in Phoenix or in some other country. Um, And that was really interesting to me. And when you found An affinity group with people that cared about the same kinds of things that you did, you could have all kinds of interesting niche conversations online that you couldn't really have anywhere else. And so it started there for sure. And it wasn't like all the bad stuff hadn't started yet. This was well before the bad stuff. And it's not to say that it was a paradise. I mean, there were always strange people and, you know, certainly no shortage of predators, but it wasn't the sort of toxic miasma that social media has become now. And I I definitely miss those days. I think most of us do.
5: Well, you write across a number of platforms and you write about activism, you write about race, you write about gender, you write about work-life issues, which is, you know, interesting. Mm -hmm. But one one thing that I noticed comes up a lot is speech itself and the the way speech works mm-hmm. in right now. I mean whether you're talking about student activism or jokes by comedians or racist hate speech you're you're asking people to kind of make distinctions mm-hmm. among different kinds of speech. And I was just wondering why you think that comes up a lot or comes up as much as it does. Uh, primarily we're dealing
6: with this sort of open air bazaar of ideas on the internet which means that All kinds of people with all kinds of perspectives are coming to the table, and some of those perspectives are noxious and dangerous. And of course, when you believe in freedom of speech, as I do, it means that those kinds of speech are going to be around, but it doesn't mean that we have to tolerate them in the spaces that we inhabit. And so I think quite a lot about how we care for the spaces that we are a part of. And what kinds of limits and guardrails we're going to put around those spaces to protect them, not to make them safe, because I don't think safety exists, but to create places where you know that you are not going to have to engage with bigotry in ways that are just unproductive.
5: You know, one of the things that I find really interesting, though, is that you're constantly asking people to think with a little bit more complexity, if I can put it that way. I'm thinking about this, one of the pieces in in the collection, The Seduction of Safety on Campus and Beyond, which was in the New York Times. And it talks about the difference between censorship, and consequences. Mm -hmm. Um, You wrote, as a writer, I believe the First Amendment is sacred. The freedom of speech, however, does not guarantee freedom from consequence. You can speak your mind, but you can also be shunned. You can be criticized. You can be ignored or ridiculed. You can lose your job. The freedom of speech does not exist in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. But you also go on to say that every consequence doesn't have to be the same. And that you call on people to sort of make some distinctions. And I was just, I was, you know, this seems to be something that that you've returned to. And I'm just interested in in why you think you have to, for one thing, why it's so important to you and why you think you have to keep talking about it.
6: Well, I think it's important because so many people misunderstand the First Amendment. They think that the right to free speech means the right to publish a book, the right to be on a private social media network saying any old thing. And that's not at all what free speech means. It means that you won't be arrested by the government for what you say. And so we have to bring nuance to these subjects because not only do we have to acknowledge that, but The consequences for free speech, there should be a range of consequences. The idea that everyone who missteps, and I'm not just talking about saying something you disagree with, I'm talking about, you know, actual hate speech, death threats, rape threats, and the like, you know, there should be consequences, but we have to figure out what is the appropriate consequence for whatever the thing is, instead of assuming that we can just sort of take a broad hammer to a singular nail, that's not really how it works. And for whatever reason, we have not gotten there yet in terms of public discourse, in terms of figuring out sort of like, what do, how do we manage scale and proportion? Uh, we just have, we're not there yet.
5: I was curious about what you think about the moment that we are in now where we're finding college students, law students having job offers withdrawn because they participated in demonstrations that some people felt were, or wrote a letter or signed a letter that some people were offended by.
6: I think it's a problem. I I think it's a real, I think it's really straining uh, the sort of boundaries of credulity that we're gonna punish college students for standing up for what they believe in. Now, if those college students are behaving in ways that are Islamophobic or anti-Semitic, yeah, you probably don't deserve a job at the end of that journey. But that's not really what's happening. I think in many instances, we're seeing college students who, right or wrong, are advocating for what they believe in and what they believe in, <laughs> we should all believe in, which is an end to atrocity, an end to genocide, a ceasefire. Um, and so our, what kind of condition are we in as a people if we think that's a bridge too far? You know, I, I think we really have to sort of have that kind of check in with ourselves, because I think some moral compasses are wildly off.
5: And I wanted to go back for a second and, and ask about you. Like, do you remember the first time something you wrote got attention, got widespread attention or impacted the national conversation in some kind of way? Do you remember what it was that you wrote? And you remember, t- yeah. tell me about it. It was an essay that's in Bad Feminist called The Careless Language of Sexual Violence. The young
6: girl in Cleveland, Texas had been gang raped. And it was a horrific crime. And the New York Times wrote a story about how the town was reeling. And I was just like, wait a minute, what? The town? I think the the child who dealt with like 20 or 30 assailants, um, I think perhaps she was reeling a bit more than the town. And I was just incensed. And so I wrote this essay in a matter of hours. And it was published. It was one of the first pieces I wrote that gained a significant audience. It was published in a magazine called The Rumpus. And the New York Times ended up re-reporting the story and putting the focus more appropriately where it belonged on the young girl and the sort of staggering details of this crime. And so that was amazing to me that I could write something from like my little old life. And I was in graduate school at the time, getting my PhD in the middle of nowhere. And still, my words reached people well beyond my immediate sphere. It was absolutely unexpected. And when the piece found an audience, and it did contribute to an ongoing conversation about sexual violence and how we write about it, how we talk about it, how we depict it in film and television, you know, that felt bittersweet in that I was sorry that this thing had happened to this child that required this writing. But at the same time, I was glad that we could at least perhaps have a better conversation about the ways in which we talk about sexual violence.
5: Do you think that whetted your appetite to, to try to persuade or influence other people through your writing? Because like, the impression I got is that some of your writing started out as being for you. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people's writing is just for them. And yeah. I'm just wondering, is there, you know, is there a point at which you you write for a purpose other than to clarify your own thinking?
6: I, I primarily still write for myself. And that other people find ways to connect with the work is an added bonus, honestly. And of course, I tend, every time I write something and I send it to an editor, I tell myself, girl, don't worry, no one's going to read it. <laughs> it is increasingly more difficult <laughs> to believe that because I do know that there is something of an audience for my work now, but telling myself no one's going to read it is what allows me to say what I really want to say on the page for better or worse. And you know, did it wet my appetite? I mean, there is something wonderful about being read. And I think mm-hmm. any writer would admit that if they're being honest. Um, yes, you write for yourself, but when what you write for yourself, manages to reach other people. It, it feels great. And I I can't pretend that it doesn't. It, it's wonderful to be at a place in my career where I know that my work will be read, maybe not by millions, but it'll be read by at least like one person. And that that is great. And I think it le- makes you feel less alone in the world.
5: Well, you know, what cracked me up is when you said that you don't actually have as many opinions as people think that you have, and that (coughs) you said that people sometimes use you like an opinion vending machine. And I was just wondering, like, how does that work? Is it like at parties where, like, like, people would, you know, corner a doctor and, and want people to look at their rash? I mean, is it... Is, is it like that? Like you go to it's a party exactly and people want, like that. You, know, really? you, know, <laughs>
6: you know, most writers, you get to be anonymous. Nobody's ever going to know you're walking down the street, but I am tall. I am fat. I have tattoos. Like I'm pretty recognizable to people who actually read my work. So I get stopped quite a lot. And when I am, people tend to say, say, what do you think about? And it could be anything from the new housewives to Um, What's happening in uh, Gaza and what, you know, October 7th, um, someone's recent news of sexual assault. It's a range of things. And I understand where that instinct comes from. But sometimes I honestly don't have an opinion or I don't have an opinion that I'm going to share with people that are not my family. (laughs) And other times, it's just like, oh, man, I don't know. I'm just trying to walk into this opera right now <laughs> like and like sit here for three hours listening to people sing. Like, I just don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so it's it's a mixed bag.
5: Where does that come? You say you know where that instinct comes from. Where do you think it comes from? Because it's interesting that, you know, on the one hand, people are interested in your opinion. On the other hand, there are people who will be like, who the hell asked you? You know what yeah, I mean? And absolutely. There, there is always that. And I'm just wondering what what... What is it that you think people are seeking and seeking you out? I think that a lot of times what people
6: want is to know that what they think is on the right track. They want to be affirmed in their point of view, or they look to my work or to work of other writers like me to help them figure out what they actually do think. And so, you know, I think it's just, a again, that that sense of connection, that sense of guidance. Um, And they may not agree with me, but what I write, oftentimes people tell me helps them arrive to what they believe, um, you know, in one way or another. And so I think a lot of it comes from that. I don't know that it's malicious. I, I, no, I actually know for a fact that it's not most of the time malicious, unless like people are trying to like catch me in something like, oh, you said something else the other day. Yeah, probably. I'm human. <laughs> um so you know, when it when it's offered in good faith, I try to be as patient as possible.
5: You you also wrote about the fact that you've written a lot about black people being killed, about it's, systemic racism, about but black people being killed by the police or by, you know, vigilantes. And you've you've written that you're tired of it. You're mm-hmm. tired of writing about it. You write you wrote in the wake of George Floyd's murder, you wrote, I write similar things about different black lives lost over and over and over. I tell myself I am done with this subject. Then something so horrific happens that I know I must say something, even though I know that the people who truly need to be moved are immovable. Mm-hmm. So so say more, like why? I mean, if if, if if the idea is to to move people, why keep writing about something when you feel like they're not listening, who who is it for then? Is, is that for you or who is it for? I think it's often for me
6: because I do with every new instance of police brutality or extrajudicial murder that we learn about every sort of grave injustice that I've written about time and time again, I just think again. And Clearly, words are not going to stop this. I know that a lot of us who write believe that sort of we're going to engender enough empathy through the written word to make everything better. But that's clearly not going to happen. But does that mean we don't say anything at all? You know, that's where I struggle. Like silence is not going to make the problem better either. And so there are these instances like with George Floyd where... You know, you have this man, Derek Chauvin, staring at the camera for eight and a half, eight minutes, 44 seconds or something like that, knowing what he was doing, knowing that people were watching him and thinking that he could continue his sort of death spiral with impunity. And, you know, each sort of new horrific case is so extra horrific. It's like, how could I not say something? And so it's this ongoing dilemma. But I also recognize what a luxury it is to be exhausted when really you can't. I mean, you can feel that way, but you would then have to move on from that because silence, as I said, isn't going to solve the problem. I don't know that writing is going to solve the problem, but at least when we talk about it, when we bear witness we make clear this is not okay this is unacceptable this man lost his life and then of course people will be like but he did this that. i don't care the you know like the penance for you know counterfeit money or whatever is not death especially not in minnesota okay so like let's just get some perspective here let's really focus on what matters which is that no one should take anyone else's life and that certainly no one in law enforcement should be doing that. And we should be safe. We should be able to walk down the street. We should be able to drive. We should be able to hold a package of Skittles in our own neighborhood without being killed by someone who thinks that they're doing the world a favor by getting rid of one more Black person.
5: Hmm. So before we let you go, you know, I'm going to ask you this one thing because everybody asks, but you, so you know, I'm going to ask. Yes. Is there anything you were just wrong about? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and the the thing is, it's not that I was wrong about
6: anything. What I say is, and this is what I truly feel, I did the best I could with the skills and the knowledge I had at the time. And if anything, what has happened is that a lot of my opinions have evolved. They've gotten more sophisticated, more progressive, where 10 years ago, I would have probably said, like, let's find a way to reform the police. Now I'm like, "Mm, I'm pretty sure they can't be reformed. And we need to figure out something else. And I don't know what that something else is. I don't know what that better way of law enforcement is. But you cannot reform something that is so irreparably broken. So you know, it's more that I've just learned more. And I've hopefully gotten more nuanced in my thinking. But the reason it's easy to say, no, I haven't gotten anything wrong, is because so much of what I believe is just women are people. We should have access to reproductive freedom. Police brutality and extrajudicial murder are bad. Like these are not really things that we should be debating, even though clearly we are debating these things. Um, So it's really that.
5: Roxanne Gay, thank you so much for talking with us.
6: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: And finally, Irish author Paul Lynch wins this year's Booker Prize, among the most prestigious fiction awards, for his fifth novel, Prophet Song. Set in a dystopian near future, the book tells the story of a family grappling with the downfall of democracy in Ireland. And Paul Lynch joins me now. Paul, congratulations. What an honor. I mean, how does it feel to win a prize that basically says you have the best English language book of the year?
2: It's very strange, Biana. I mean, I, I, I genuinely, it's, it's, I'm still pinching myself. I, I, have, I have not processed this. Um, I've been in a media sort of tunnel now since uh, half seven this morning. Um, my feet haven't touched the ground and I'm thinking about life back home. And it seems very far away and uh, very humdrum compared to the, the, the sudden, <laughs> a sudden change in my life here.
0: Well, you're due to float in the air for we'll we'll give you a couple of days to to take this all in. But but as we talk about your success in this book um, and what it means to you, tell our viewers how you came up with the plot line and uh, the message that you're sending with it.
2: Oh, you know, it's tricky to to describe how one comes upon a book. But, you know, around the time when I started writing it in sort of the end of 2018, just the sense of what we might call a disorder or unravelling in the sort of the modern world was just leaking into the pages. There was, you know, there was Trump and there was Brexit and there was the surge to the right across Europe in the wake of the Syrian refugees. There was, of course, that crisis. And I'm not a political novelist. That's that's not my calling. I'm not setting out. to to, to deliver you know a single message I think that would be disastrous if you're a novelist but all these things were leaking into the story and I just ended up writing a tale about the you know I, I sort of marched a few steps forward and thought okay where might all this lead to and if it leads to this well what does that look like
0: and uh, ireland is typically a country that has welcomed immigrants but we've seen what what has transpired just within recent days uh, there was a stabbing on thursday that, that triggered a backlash and a riot um, some speculating that, that perhaps this attacker what was an immigrant and thus uh, we had some reaction from far-right elements in the country we we know that the head of the booker jury said the decision was made to award you this prize on saturday i'm curious if you think recent events um folded into that decision making
2: you know the, the the jury actually spoke about that and said that it didn't um and that but at the same time you know this is a book where when I had finished writing it, you, you, the war in Ukraine broke out very soon afterwards, and 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 you know again this year we're seeing the conflict now in Gaza, and I I've met. I met somebody a palestinian yesterday and she said to me you you told our story and i met a ukrainian two nights ago and she said you told our story and this is sort of the magic perhaps of fiction that somehow the closer you can get to sort of universal truths the more narratives that you can, can you can hold within that container you can you, you you can tell multiple stories within one narrative and setting it in dublin allowed me to create something that perhaps has universal weight
0: You're one of two Irish nominees for this prize. What does that tell you about um, perhaps a new golden age of Irish literature that, that, that we are walking into?
2: Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Uh, it's it's certainly extraordinary. I mean, there was four Irish writers on the Booker long list, and you know that just seems to be highly unusual. Um, I, I I think that many of us have, have benefited from from support from the Irish government, which has made a huge difference to to the to our ability to remain as as full time writers. Because writing it's not easy and it's it's financially challenging, uh, and so that's been a big help. And you know, there's just. We live in a country where literature is taken very seriously and we still have that energy that writers like Beckett and Joyce have just transmitted into the culture. We're still, you know, it's, they're, they're so deeply in the language that they're, they're there with you every day, whether you realize it or not. And we're still just pulling down off that glorious energy.
0: Is that where you draw your inspiration from, from some of the, the country's best authors of the past?
2: Yeah, I mean, I look. I'm a wide reader, and I, I'm 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 drawing inspiration from everywhere. And but there was an interesting thing when I was re- writing this book, I realised that I had sort of come upon my own Terry incognita. That I was I did I didn't I didn't quite know uh, what what references to have for this book. That I was sort of pushing out into my own sort of world, you know. Um, that this book was was perhaps saying something new. Um, and I sort of had that feeling while I was writing it.
0: So the prize money is about fifty thousand pounds or sixty thousand dollars i've read that you're going to use it to pay uh, your mortgage once again bringing you down to earth the realities of day to day (laughs) life and commitments is that where where this money is going
2: you know i have a tracker mortgage uh you know the ecb rates have been increasing for nearly (laughs) a year and a half and my mortgage used to be very affordable you know for a writer, perfectly affordable and it's gone up 75 percent in the last you know year and a half and now it's unaffordable has been unaffordable for me. So that's, that's what I'm going to spend the money on. And it's, it's, very, it's very humdrum, I'm sorry to say. I'm, I'm not going to be buying any life-size horse lamps or anything unusual like that.
0: Well, perhaps uh, some of the economic challenges uh, you're facing, and, and you're not alone, should be the subject of your next award-winning book. Um, Paul Lynch, congratulations, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. Well, that is it for now. Thank you so much for watching the program and goodbye from New York.